The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So like I mentioned earlier, I wanted to do a little teaching on, you know, how we relate to and work with what we call, you know, obstacles. I mean, even that, it's hard to even talk about it without reinforcing uh, ways of relating to the mind or experience that... Um, I mean, basically everything that we're interacting with, we're in these organic processes, you know, that have a feedback mechanism to that, to them. So all the stress that we feel in life, it's part of some coherent pattern. And so when I talk about, oh, I have a practice and I'm going to uproot the obstacles, you know, to the continuity of awareness, it kind of sets up problems. This idea, I mean, basically we're looking at the problem from a dualistic point of view. It's the thing I like, which is that continuity of present moment awareness that sees things as it is. And the enemy are these thoughts about my vacation and thoughts about this difficult interaction and the pain in my body and that person who's breathing too loud next to me. And, <laughs> and it's just, and we feel like, okay, I need to get rid of these enemies and then I'll get to this place. So a lot of what, um, a lot of the teaching that we get initially when we're going to talk about Samadhi or the sort of developing the stability of this, you know, presence, this clear, loving, relaxed, non-judging presence that has that flavor of stillness, right, is to uh, talk immediately, like to, it's almost we're infusing our whole idea of the practice with the idea, the view that maybe nothing has to be a problem or a suspicion, maybe conflict and struggling isn't the way. And uh, so here we are, you know, like uh, Holly's example where because it's so common that we're sitting, especially after a while, and the body either feels restless or the body's sleepy or there's a lot of pain whatever it might be, you know, it's generally something. The leg falls asleep. And then if we have that, if we've been given that idea and we've thought about, we've contemplated the idea that, well, maybe, maybe experience, whatever the conditions or the circumstances that are showing up, that initially appear to me to be the problem, (laughs) maybe that is that idea, that attitude isn't actually correct or helpful. So that, that can kind of suspend the mind from just going out to get the enemy, you know, fix the pain in the knee or tell the person next to me who's breathing too loud, stop it. And instead, like, it really puts the emphasis back on view or how the mind is relating to the conditions especially, you know, in particular, the circumstances, the conditions that are pushing my buttons. 
making me angry, making me upset, making me worried. And I, I forget who said it, but maybe it was you, Jordan, but just, is there another way for me to be relating or another way for me to be knowing or for me to be with these conditions? And that's a lot of what the practice points to. You know, there's an old story in the Buddhist tradition. It's made up. It, it isn't, you know, based on an actual interaction with the Buddha. But it, the story goes like this. There's a farmer who's having a lot of trouble in life because he can't control the weather and they can't control the pests and he can't even control his family and doing the chores and farm animals and this and that. So he, he hears about this guy, the Buddha, who seems to know what he's talking about, so he has to go through all the trouble to track him down. Eventually, after weeks of travel, finds him, explains to the Buddha all his problems that come with being a farmer, and the Buddha just sort of looks at him and says, everybody's got 83 problems. You have 83 problems. You have Everybody has 83 problems. Even if I had some clever way to resolve one of your problems, you just get another one. And you can imagine it infuriated the farmer. He storms off. And just before he's out of earshot of the Buddha, the Buddha says, even though I can't help you with your 83 problems, I can help you with your 84th problem, which is not liking having 83 problems. And that's really what this kind of points to. When we're sitting... There are 83 problems. When we're living our daily life, there are 83 problems, you know, obviously it's give or take, but <laughs> there are a lot of things that, you know, we really want, and if I get that, then I'll be happy, or if I get rid of this, I'll be happy, or if things stay the same, if things would only change. So we're, and then, the, but the teachings that what the Buddha discovered then passed along, if there's a way to show up, a way to relate, to sense experience, to the many internal, external circumstances, causes and conditions that uh, resolves the problem. Because the, the problem isn't the pain in the knee or it's too hot or too cold. The problem is the idea of a somebody looking for safety in a permanent way, looking for that sort of utopian moment when I got everything I want. And it's based on this idea of a somebody needing something in order to be safe. And this kind of goes back, uh, Adam and I were chatting a little during the tea time and about that stillness, and Adam was like, well, is that enough? And it's kind of a seed. You know, when we get a little bit of unification, like the mind has gathered in the present moment, and like Danielle pointed out in, in their sharing, you know, it feels good when the mind drops back into that relatively stable presence. It has a good feeling. We really want to acknowledge, because it's subtle, but it, it's real. That's a, it really does feel right and down in the bones kind of way. And it does, the reason it feels right or good in that deeper, subtle way is because it has a little bit of that flavor of like a change in allegiance from the, the normal allegiance of our mind is when I get everything just the way I want them, 
to be, then I'll be at ease. Then I'll be happy. We never get there. But that we still believe that that's true. You know, that I'm going to get there. Even though I haven't yet, I'm going to get there. I'm going to finally get my internal act together and then I'm going to get my circle around me, my partner together. I'll make them the way I want them to be and the cat I'll make, or your puppy, you know, get trained the way I want my puppy to be. It will only come see me and be cute when I want it to be cute, when I want to be left alone. It will leave me alone. So we never get there. But when we have that stability of awareness, there's a, a kind of profound immunity the heart experiences like, I'm content, I'm peaceful, the heart, body, mind, or whatever, this is peace, and the peace that I'm sensing, the stillness, is not conditioned by all the other stuff that's coming and going. And that's the radical thing that the practice can open up for us. That's why in Buddhism we often talk about the freedom as being unconditioned, meaning you, you don't feel good, you don't have contentment, you don't have peace because you got everything you wanted and you got, every, you got rid of everything you don't want. That peace, that unconditioned happiness or peace or release, that Nibbana or Nirvana that the Buddha talks about, is that it's that realization that the whole vortex, that whole neurotic vortex or spinning of somebody trying to get to a good place isn't what it appears to be. And it can implode, it can just fall away. It has, for all of us, fallen away in moments, hasn't it? Not, maybe not completely, but, and in sitting, especially over time, you'll get more of those moments, a little bit like Danielle mentioned, where Danielle, remember, has been on retreat for almost four weeks now, <laughs> so that helps. You know, the simplicity of the environment for that many days in a row. And the mind begins to intuit something that's always here, which is, it's not even a place, it's a way of relating. It's a way of being bright and relaxed and not afraid of being exposed to the conditions or the, the way it is in the moment. And it's not looking to the circumstance, like what thoughts are in my mind, what emotions are there, what sensations are here, what's going on around me. It's not looking to sense experience to build my utopian moment. The peace, the freedom is exactly the non-dependence on conditions. So that means, I mean, just to be provocative, that means you could be sitting next to the person you love most in the life and they're on their deathbed and you could be that, you could be feeling the enormity of the pain of loss, you could be profoundly sensitive to them and connecting with them. and You could be doing whatever, you could be picking up, washing up the vomit or whatever. But the peace, the freedom, isn't conditioned by the circumstances. Or you could just be having a boring, ordinary moment of life. You know, you get up, you make the bed again, you brush the teeth again, you put the toast in the toaster, you know, you boil the water for the coffee. But that 
peace, that release, that not that absence of conflict in the heart, that absence of struggle, the heart that is empty of that grasping, empty of that struggling, empty of the tightness of any kind of conceit, that can be there in ordinary moments and profoundly difficult moments and really beautiful moments. And it really is that shift about how we view obstacles. So that's one of the reasons when we practice, we sit still, you know, and we build our capacity. So maybe five minutes initially, but you know, generally people can start out around 15 minutes, but you know, then we build, you know, up to an hour, some people even several hours when the concentration is deeper because that inner pleasure of concentration really allows you to sit for longer periods of time. But, but just to sit for, you know, 45 minutes, let's say, it's like you see everything under the sun. All the petty neurotic tendencies of our mind, all the eebie-jeebies in the body, you know, wanting to move, all the dull states in the body and the mind. I mean, it's just like everything under the sun will show up. And we get the practice, like, what is the refuge what is the way the mind, the heart can be, can relate, that gives it immunity to all the changing circumstances that come and go? So that nature, the nature of experience, of sound, of sensation, of thought, you know, that's just going to, the mind, like the thinking mind, it's just going to do what it's been conditioned to do. So if you've been practicing a lot of worrying for 40 years, when you sit, what do you think your mind's going to do? It's going to worry. That's, it's got so much momentum. If you're into planning, if you're into fantasizing, if you're into work, you know, whatever the things, uh, problem solving. So as a meditator, we have to, like, let the sounds be sounds, let the sights be sights, let thoughts be thoughts, let emotions be emotions, let sensations be sensations. So what's the refuge? And, you know, we have words in the tradition like non-grasping, the heart that doesn't grasp. But we have to actually discover or realize it directly. And we get little glimpses, little moments where, you know, that's like we're sitting and it's just like a little torturous, you know, we're just kind of holding it together. We really feel like bolting or ending it. But then all of a sudden, something shifts. A moment ago, it really felt convincingly like there was a me who had a lot of problems with the sit. And then something shifts and all of a sudden there isn't anybody with a problem. I mean, if you had to put it into words, you'd say, nobody, no problem. It doesn't mean I can't re-establish the sense of self. It just means that it's not needed that idea that there's a me who has problems, it's like that just falls away. And what's left is empty of neurotic activity. We don't even, in early Buddhism especially, we don't talk about what's left when that neurotic activity ceases. Because we just end up rarefying, if we, if we call it something, like Buddha nature or, you know, whatever we might call that state of release or freedom, we don't want to make it into something that the mind then wants. We just appreciate that 
However neurotic the mind has a tendency to be because of habits, in the wide open, steady, stable, mindful presence space, it will demonstrate its nature to end, to cease. So it doesn't matter how crazy, neurotic, active, whatever our minds are, if we cultivate that stability of present moment awareness, we'll notice it's ceasing. It's there, wild, we're caught up, we're identified with it, but then we notice that I'm caught up, the mind is caught up, we'll notice that we're identified. But whatever it is, its nature is, because it, it's a process, it, doesn't, it isn't referring back to the neurotic me that is sort of there. And awareness will reveal the empty nature of that torturous experience, and we'll get more and more a sense of trusting something that can't be grasped, but that's here and now. And I like to say sometimes that it sort of creeps in over months and years and decades of practice, that confidence that being open and clear, bright, relaxed, fearless with the conditions, internal, external, it grows the confidence in this release, this peace. And then the other thing we notice is that how we live our lives, the kind of choices we make, how we engage problems that need engagement, we're just so much more free and nimble and creative and resilient as we do the stuff of life. And it's not like Mark is trying to be more nimble, creative, resilient. It's just sort of what comes out of the practice. So I'll leave it here. Uh, obviously, you know, you know, I'm sure everyone knows, three weeks of an introduction, and some of you have been practicing before, is just enough to kind of wet our appetite, you know. And uh, so we have the weekly, uh, the monthly practice, community practice group that Matthew will lead as long as he's in town, but some, some leader will lead that the first Wednesday of the month. And then I or one of the Kamagans teachers will come out to give a talk the third Wednesday of the month, and, you know, we're, it's both for the people who are here on retreat, but especially for the local community, anybody who's willing to drive, just to build the connection with the local community more. So keep that in mind, if that ever makes sense. Pass it on to folks who you think might be interested. They can get on the email list that Matthew and the retreat center will keep together. But we have a little time for questions and discussion and and then some social time if people want to connect. But first, let's just see if there are any questions about what I've said, or just generally about the Buddhist teachings and how it relates to mindful awareness practice. What comes to mind? Even testimonials about It's like that, those moments of freedom, it isn't that I got, sometimes, you know, it is like I've really gotten my mind into a place where it's not being attacked by anything, and I feel good. It's like being on a really nice vacation, you know, and I'm being taken care of, and I don't have any bad, unpleasant things I have to do. 
But that's why it, the confidence really builds when we're not having that perfect sit, but we've had a wild sit. But we've really kept showing up, kept showing up, kept saying, yes, it's like this now, it feels like this. Kept relaxing, kept being interested. And then we'll notice that shift from, I'm a suffering human being that can't wait for this stuff to end, to nobody, no problem. And, and the key here is, we don't have to explain why that happened to ourselves or to our friends, <laughs> you know. But we want to notice, because it's a teaching to us, a direct teaching like, oh. Because one of the things about, as freedom develops in our life, more space, more freedom, more resilience, it's like, it's real but it isn't personal. Like I can't, from an egoic point of view, just sort of claim it or demand that it show itself. Okay, now I'm, I, I need to be free now, so I'm going to be free now. It arises when the conditions are there, like to look, to notice, to trust. And when we don't, like uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, um, some of you know, passed away recently. He has one of the more pithy phrases I like of his is, we have one enemy, forgetfulness. It's the only enemy. Yeah, any thoughts for the group? Yeah, Adam. Um, my question is about being grounded. Being grounded? Being grounded. Um, I'll have a tendency to uh, be more flowy or you know, flowing around. Being in everything but not being centered. Is there a nuanced part of sitting or that this can help with that, or is that a different practice? No, I mean, it, if I'm understanding right, there's sort of two, and it, it has a lot to do with our temperaments, you know, just our personalities. But there are some minds that naturally have a more, uh, more of an affinity to the breadth of awareness. And that might correspond to being more floaty. And other people have a natural affinity when they start sort of their spiritual practices to the depth. And actually we need both. And so it's, it's, you don't want to lose the breath. But, you know, working with um, interest and even a more specific meditation object like, you know, a classic one would just feeling the breath at the nostrils as it comes in, it goes out. And, and learning that it's safe for the mind to let go of the diversity of the other present moment experience and just to know one thing. Because it can, for a mind that likes the breadth of awareness, it can feel scary to only be interested in one thing. Because it wonders, like, what else is happening, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a good training for those minds to notice there's real pleasure in just knowing one thing in its depth mm -hmm. and letting go of the diversity of experience. Just like for people who have that more, I don't know, narrow, always seems to have a negative connotation, but more specific, you know, tendency, it's like really good for them to at times let go of meditation objects 
and have more of an open awareness, that breadth of awareness, and cultivate that. Hearing, for example, is a nice a step toward that more open awareness to use hearing as a meditation object, and then just broaden to all six sense gates, you know, what's going on in the thinking mind, how about seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Anything else? Well, I mean, the, the thing about, the, there's like all these different layers of experience from, let's just call it, like different frequencies from gross to subtle. And in the same way that we can feel that twisting, burning in our knee or something at the gross end of the spectrum, we can attune to all these subtle energies. And uh, different traditions have really mapped them out. You know, and you might feel inclined to some maps like the Chinese map or the, the yogic map of these subtle energies. But in, in Buddhism, it's just something being known. Does it mean that those uh, maps of energetic systems is not accurate? It just means that our job is just to know that it's there. And if you find that your hands are doing that, then you'll know that, right? So there's something... Um, to both uh, allowing the body to do whatever it wants to do, which is called daily life practice, and then there is something about the form of holding still, whether we're sitting or lying down or standing, because we see that the impulse more clearly when we're not responding, we're just in the knowing, just in the knowing. And it doesn't mean that it's wrong to play with the subtle energies or to um, yeah, to dance with them. It just means that there's the learning is a little bit different. Uh, Qigong, Tai Chi, mindful yoga, walking meditation, there's so much to learn in movement practice. And it's also something to learn in stillness. Like, can these energies that we're feeling get... You know, it's sort of like the mind creates a sense of open space and the energies can do what they need to do in that open space. But for sure, as we're working out the ways the energetic systems have gotten bound up, movement is very useful. You know, whether the movement is we've got a really good energy worker working with us or we're a serious student of yoga, or Tai Chi, or Qigong, or... Yeah, because it can facilitate a lot of the healing of how the system has gotten bound up with fear, and trauma, and abuse, and all kinds of strong experiences that the heart didn't know what to do with, so it just sort of buries it. And then it lives in the energetic systems until there's enough safety and, and wisdom to... 
allow things to unwind some or a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, you kind of know this feel, I'm right? Yeah. Yeah. So you can keep doing all that stuff, but just also appreciate the value of sitting still. And remember, as we sit more and more, we really uh, learn how to be released. Alert and released in the body, upright and released. And it will be, you know, it's all about our age and our injuries, but we'll find, this body will find a way and it mirrors the mind finding a way to be alert and released at the same time. But it's a journey for sure. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.